0: Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, a podcast to inspire you with ideas, with thinking from the margins, from the periphery. Really, because that's where the ideas which will shape the mainstream tomorrow are hiding today, on those margins, on the edges. Consider these conversations little pockets of wisdom to inspire you to think about your work and maybe even the very work that you do differently. This week we're joined by Jeremy Lent, author, integrator and really truly epic thinker. Jeremy's written a couple of books. The first, The Patterning Instinct, a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning, which explores the way humans have made meaning from the cosmos, from hunter-gatherer times to the present day. Uh, and his new book, which is actually the focus of the conversation today, is called The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. It offers a coherent and intellectually solid foundation for a worldview based on connectedness that could lead humanity to a sustainable and flourishing future. And I have to say, this second book is really in part of the inspiration of why this podcast series exists. So I am super pleased that Jeremy is joining us, super pleased we get a chance to talk about this and the ideas in it. Jeremy, thank you for joining us on Peripheral Thinking. Welcome to the
1: show. So looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you.
0: So I guess the place that I'm curious to start to an extent, is the beginning, which sort of seems like an obvious place to begin. Uh, so you're a you're an Englishman, a Britishman, who is living in the States.
1: Yeah, in fact, yeah, I've lived most of my adult life now in the United States, which now in recent years is a little bit of a question mark yeah. as to where that is headed. But anyway, no, I grew up in England, and actually, I, yeah, I did my undergraduate at Cambridge. But then I left England at age 21, basically, and the reason I left was... It's ironic in a way now when we look at how the United States developed. But I wanted to rebel. I was rebelling against the whole English kind of way of being. This was like 1981. This is right, Thatcher's yeah. England, yeah. and it was like, get me the hell out of here. And I really wanted to actually explore like sort of spiritual growth. And instead of going east, I got transfixed as a teenager by those images of Woodstock and those hippies like taking psychedelics and just go, I was going, that's what I want. Of course, what I didn't know is I was landing in, in the early 1980s in Reagan's America. So things didn't quite go as expected. I ended up actually meeting and marrying somebody who'd been a hippie in the sixties and seventies and had traveled all over South America and just seemed so, it seemed so romantic. Like she'd lived with the indigenous people in Peru and all this stuff. And so I, and she, at the time though, was coming from a different direction. She wanted to sort of, in her words, go straight. So I ended up actually with her raising two kids and going and getting an MBA and going right into the whole corporate Americas. I <laughs> actually started my own company, but th- so it was a very circuitous path to my life, which ended up with all of that crashing and me going through a whole deep exploration looking for meaning, which led me to the path I'm on right now. So you're based on the West Coast? That's right. I'm in Berkeley, California. Because after this whole midlife crisis where my life crashed around me, because actually that my first wife and passed away some years back, she got very sick. And I'd started a company, an internet company, took it public. And then she got sick. I left the company, looked after her. The company collapsed. I left it too early. She I looked after her for years, but she had some borderline cognitive dementia kind of thing. So I really lost my relationship with her even when I was looking after her. And I I went through this whole crucible melting. And as part of that, I ended up going back to that original 21-year-old looking for what is really meaningful in life. And really, I feel very blessed because I feel like when I finally did do that really path of true spiritual exploration, I had a half a lifetime of experience under my belt, which led me to really, I think, do a much more rigorous and serious search than I might ever have been able to do at age 21.
0: I guess one, one of the things we'll definitely come to talk about, which I know you kind of reference, are the, the Taoist influences in there. And I, I know right. for my yeah. own, I, I remember reading when I was a student, I read The Tao of Poop, <laughs> which was my my kind of first ever reading of, of anything actually, which kind of offered me a different sort of lens on which we live. And so actually, in a similar kind of, it's interesting how these seeds are sown at the, whatever time they are, and when the ground is kind of ripe for them
1: to shoot. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. It was interesting for me, when I first went to New York, at age 21, actually, I was living with a roommate in New York. And one, of the, one day, he gave me a uh, uh, psychedelic and I walked around New York and just all the mean streets and going, this is not right. There's something better we need. Went back to the apartment. He gave me a copy of the Tao Te Ching. It was this beautiful copy with these beautiful black and white images and this wonderful fonts and this wisdom. And I read it on the psychedelic and it felt so meaningful to me. I went, this is true wisdom. I had I'd never come across this before in my life. Just this sense there was a different way of living life. And interestingly, it then took me sort of 20, uh, 25 years or so before I found my way back to that. But it was a similar kind of experience I had. Yeah. uh, yeah.
0: And it's it's, it's interesting, it's like with lots of, so I've had my own, in terms of my own kind of working life, about 15 years ago, I started practicing meditation and kind of immersing myself in more the sort of Buddhist teaching. And it's kind of, then my work since then is about trying to work out how all of these things come together. And I know one of the things, obviously, they talk about and in the kind of Buddhist teaching is that there is an event, actually, which kind of brings people back. And I'm kind of wondering, then, for your own sort of experience, the situation with your then-wife, the crumbling, the kind of breaking down, the extent to which we need those situations, which I guess then has yeah. you know, bearing on...
1: what I What I think is that it actually is unique in each person's experience. Some people are fortunate enough that even... When they're just growing up in their adolescence or whatever, they might get it, that there's a different way of being. With me, I I felt that, but I didn't have access in my early 20s to a real source of wisdom that could really help me in that direction. So I got hauled into this kind of mainstream way of being. And then it took, because I built such a, it's almost like the more successful you are in that world, the stronger the barriers you build around you to actually explore anything different. So to me, it took this complete sort of crash of almost like a bell jar I'd I'd, um, created around myself to then fall into this melting crucible, which felt terrifying, but also felt liberating. And I do think that there is this sense in the Buddhist path that we all experience what they call dukkha, that sense of suffering, that sense, which is really the word dukkha is often translated as suffering, but it's really more a general sense of unease. This is not quite right. This world I'm living in, this life I'm living isn't right. But a lot of us then just learn how to manage it, how to adapt to it, how to soothe ourselves and not actually get to the heart of it. And I think it does take some moment to actually turn towards saying, really, it's almost like a notion of feeling a sense of love for yourself. You got to get to that point to say, I've got this one life and I love this being and I deserve something better than leaving this unease. And and it's an shifting orientation towards wanting to actually alleviate that suffering that really, in my mind, starts the spiritual path, whatever direction that might then take.
0: Because if I think about the the numbers of people, of course, which don't even, they, they just find ways to ignore the suffering or to attempt to ignore the suffering, or at least to ignore the, the noise of the suffering, just to carry on going.
1: That's right. And I think of them, the best way of Describing that in my way, in my mind, is a sense of numbness, which is that it's this numbness to our connectivity, basically, which is something I explore in this book, the Web of Meaning, and this realization that we can actually Im- imagine, um, in your physical body, if if you've been given an anesthetic or whatever, and you're like, say, your jaw is numb, you can touch it, and you know you're actually touching it, but you don't feel anything. It's completely, you're just not even aware that's being touched. So similarly. Um, it's like our culture creates this like psychological this spiritual anesthetic in our whole being, so we're we are, we've become so numb to our connections within ourselves, with others around us, with the rest of life that we don't even realize we are connected, and so we think that's our reality, whereas really it's just like this kind of spiritual anesthesia that our culture has instilled in us
0: yeah, uh, and so definitely someone want to come back to this kind how we kind of unhook people from the kind of isolation that they feel, because I think that's a key part of what you're talking about. So the book, The Web of Meaning, so you've written three books, I think, have you? And two of them are nonfiction and one of them was, was a novel, is that right? That's right, exactly. Yeah? yeah. And so I'm kind of sort of curious, so the relationship between the patterning instinct and The Web of Meaning, presumably there is a kind of evolution there, one leads to the other. What's the sort of broad relationship between those?
1: Well, actually, the two books were originally conceived as one book, and I sort of made notes over a number of years, for them, this one set of notes, which is this massive Word document that takes hours to load on my computer. computers to so make. But basically, at some point, it became clear, this has to be two books. But in a way, this most recent book, The Web of Meaning, is like a sequel to The Patterning Instinct. And just for anybody who's not aware of my work, basically, this first book, The Patterning Instinct, that came out a few years ago, is the subtitle to that book is A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And what this first book did is it looked at the different ways in which cultures have made meaning out of the universe all the way from our hunter-gatherer predecessors thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, to the present day. And this was actually a result of my own search for meaning because I didn't, when I was in this kind of crucible and trying to make sense of things, I didn't want to just take other people's words for whatever it was, whether it was what the soul is or what God is or what meaning is or anything. And I kept peeling the onion to try to understand where these ideas came from, which caused me to go all the way down back into history and different cultures. And so one of the ways things about that book, that first book, The Patterning Instinct, is what arises from it is this realization that actually our worldview of what different cultures have shaped their values. And those values are what have actually shaped history. And and then by the same token, the values we have right now will shape the future. So that first book looked all the way up to the present day and looked at this kind of world in which we live in, which is unraveling at a rapid pace. And this new book, The Web of Meaning, and the subtitle to that one is Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. This book really communicates and expresses my own way in which I wove together the great insights that I came across over the years, both from modern science and from traditional wisdom. We talked about Buddhism and Taoism. There's also this great tradition called Neo-Confucianism in China, which incorporated some of the great insights from both of those into a very um, amazing way of understanding things. And also indigenous knowledge, too, from around the world. But all these great wisdom traditions actually show the same thing that modern science points us to which is what I unfold in the book. Because in my own search for meaning, I didn't want to just take somebody else's ideas or just go for a belief if it didn't feel that my rational brain could feel satisfied. It had to be, whatever meaning I came across, had to be something that felt really rigorous scientifically for me, not just some sort of, I just believe it because it feels good. And this is what this most recent book, The Web of Meaning is about, is showing how there's a path to meaning that is scientifically rigorous and also leads us to the sense of deep connectedness and a sense of deep meaning in our lives.
0: What is then the the relationship between our sort of understanding of meaning and these ideas of worldviews? How are those things connected or or inform each other?
1: The way to understand worldview really is it's really like the lens with which we use to make sense of the world. And basically, because of how we are as humans, that's which is why I call that first book, The Patterning Instinct, we as humans have a very highly developed instinct to pattern meaning into everything around us. That's why, like an infant, as soon as she's born, nobody has to tell her hey, you have to learn how language works. Listen carefully to all the things that, you have, that work around us because you're going to have to figure out language. Her instinct is to take these words and sounds related to feelings. And over the months and years, she begins to realize, oh, this is, um, there's a pattern here. And she learns that's the patterning instinct at work. So similarly, what humans do as we look at the universe is we pattern meaning into that. just like we look at the stars and pattern in and see constellations. And the thing about meaning, patterning meaning, is that some things fit into that pattern and you see it clearly, and other things have to be excluded from that pattern, and you start to not notice them. And early, <clears throat> from the earliest times as humans first developed language, this is what we did, is pattern meaning into the world. And that's the kind of culture and that's the worldview that we create. So, for example, the ancient early hunter-gatherers, um, their pattern of meaning was ultimately to see... Nature as a giving parent, like a, almost like a root metaphor to understand the earth. And then once you see nature like that, then, well, if nature is a parent, then all living things around us must be relatives. We're all part of the same family. And if nature is a parent, nature's not going to let us go hungry. So you trust nature and you have this intimate relationship with the divinity of nature. And that's how the whole worldview unfolds. Our modern worldview has a very different foundation. It sees nature as a machine, and it sees humans as separate from nature. And seeing that leads to a very different way of relating to the world and to others. Like basically, nature is just this this sort of resource to exploit, which we've done a great job of in the last few hundred years, coming to this kind of crisis we're in right now. But that's the way in which worldviews lead cultures to different directions. And they're so powerful because we don't realize we're actually looking at the world through a worldview. We just think that's the way it is. That's a worldview sort of gives you a sense of here's how things work. Here's the values that just make sense. And here's how you meant to live your life. But it's only when you look at a different through a different lens and see that, oh, God, the world can look very different, that it opens your mind to actually starting to understand how you formed your own worldview and how there could be different ways of making meaning.
0: And so how would you characterize, in sort of simplistic sense then, the the worldview that that was, in a sense, versus the worldview that we inhabit? There were a few
1: different earlier worldviews. There was that sort of early, those nomadic hunter-gatherers from tens of thousands of years ago, we just saw nature as giving parent. And for the last thousands of years, many thousands of years, we've lived, most of humanity has lived in settled agrarian societies, which have tended to be much more hierarchical based. And those early worldviews developed this notion of <clears throat> there's a sort of divinity out there, but it's hierarchical. So you got to pray to this god, you got to appease the god, you got to sacrifice to the gods, and so they took their hierarchies in their society and assumed the whole of nature was like that. And it's really the worldview that we now have in our modern uh, day. The roots of it actually came all the way back from ancient Greece. And from a couple of thousand years ago or more, there was a radical shift that they did. And they began to see not so much this kind of hierarchy of spirits in nature, but they saw a split cosmos. And Plato was the one who was the best at describing this. And he saw as some sort of external dimension that was fixed and perfect. And there was this world that was polluted and changeable. And and the whole point of everything was to get to that eternal dimension. And you saw humans as splits too. We had a soul and a body. And the soul was I'd link with divinity. And the body was all with this kind of prison that the soul was imprisoned in. So when we died, our soul went back to p- perfection. And actually, Christianity inherited that. And even though nowadays we think of science as being in opposition to religion and Christianity, actually that worldview incubated the scientific revolution because it actually made the sense that somehow our soul linked us to divinity and was in this body that wasn't really divine. And Descartes was probably the philosopher who really set the foundation for our modern worldview with his notion of, I think, therefore I am. Everyone's heard this, the most famous statement in philosophy, cogito ergo sum, And what does that mean? Well, basically, what it meant to Descartes, and from generations after that, was the very identity of me as a human being is my thinking capacity. That's and that's in Descartes' mind that was our mind or soul that links us to divinity, and that's the only thing that has true essential meaning and existence. So my body is just a thing once again that the mind is housed in, and other animals. And living sentient beings, they don't think like humans. So they don't even have a real existence. And that's what led to this modern worldview of basically seeing each human as separate from our own bodies, separate from each other. And so the whole notion of existence is to just be be as selfish as possible and look out for ourselves, separate from nature, seeing nature as just this kind of machine to figure out how it works and then exploit it to its max. And that worldview haji had incredibly powerful implications it led to the scientific revolution it wasn't all bad it led us to actually understand how the world works in many ways giving us technology and all the great benefits electricity things like the germ theory of disease allowing us to discover hygiene and and allowing me to talk to you right now over thousands of miles in real time and people to hear our conversation amazing stuff we can all be so grateful for So it's not to disparage the modern worldview, but it's led to an imbalance where we have now exploited nature and the few lucky elite within humanity have exploited others in the rest of humans so extremely that everything is now unraveling. We're moving towards a, a really a crisis, a major existential crisis of civilization where we're having ecological breakdown not just climate breakdown, but the whole, our whole ecology we've like overshot. And then there's this incredible imbalance of inequality within our own human species, which is driving societies to unravel. And those issues we're only going to be able to truly solve from a different, looking at reality from a different lens. A lens which, as i show in this book, is actually scientifically valid. These ideas from Descartes and the Scientific Revolution great ideas when they were developed hundreds of years ago, but now they've been shown to actually be very limited and to have serious flaws.
0: What were the cultural conditions that meant that worldview that sent us scurrying down that path? What was the condition of the soil, if you like, that meant that worldview
1: was so resonant and then so exportable? That's actually a very profound question, and it's not easy to figure out the the answer to it, like basically, because I was talking earlier about how worldviews shape history and shape culture, but there's a almost like a reciprocal feedback effect because also the actual way in which people live affects their worldview, and I think that 's where you're coming from. why does one worldview become dominant and not the other and it is very much this kind of complex feedback loop, and what's very interesting some science some anthropologists have looked at is and this realization that the way the sort of subsistence means that a culture uses, basically, do they uh, fundamentally are they fish fisher people? Uh, do they grow corn? Uh, do they grow wheat? Do they grow rice? Actually, that kind of stuff affects the norms that people have, which ultimately does affect the worldview. What's fascinating is that, like, we we know that the Western worldview is very much individualistic oriented. The East Asian worldview in China, which I write about a lot, is much more collective oriented, sees reality not in terms of individual things, but everything in terms of relationship. And what's fascinating is when you study how rice is harvested, there's a certain period when you harvest rice where you've got to do it right away. And all the people in a community have to work together to harvest the rice together, because if you don't, you miss the opportunity. So it's very much something where you can't just be an individual rice harvester. You can only do it successfully within with community working together. Wheat, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. Not that I'm the expert on this agricultural stuff, but basically what they say is like, um, it's actually something where you can just have your own fields and you employ a few people. You can um, harvest the wheat. You can do it almost more effectively just focusing on your own fields. And what they found is that within China, when they've done studies of people's orientation in their own values towards a collective orientation or individualistic orientation, they found that in the wheat-growing parts of China, people are more individualistic. And in the rice-growing parts of China, people are more collective-oriented. And when we look back at um, ancient Greece, which is really probably the most fundamental source of this modern worldview, what we find is there were a lot of different islands Where they were more, um, people were more into things like fishing, which is much more an area where you do your own thing. And rather than becoming part of a big collective, it's much more around like figuring out for yourself what's going to work. So there was a much greater sense of seeing existence as more individual based rather than being part of a much bigger collective group. Also, there's a fragmentation that we see in the Greek city states which also led to the almost like this kind of marketplace of ideas and a sense of com- com- competitiveness almost between different ideas that led to modern ways of thinking.
0: The idea of marketplace of ideas, so that that kind of feeding a competitive thing rather than there being cross fertilisation and sort of rather that, that sort of accentuating the separateness rather than a kind of lived connectedness that came out of that.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. And the point is, once again, This is not to say there's one that's better than the other. But once we look at the fact that you can make different forms of meaning out of things, you can see that actually there is a certain value to, say, in the ancient Chinese uh, culture. If somebody came up with a brand new idea and tried to explain it to the dukes or the, the most important people in the country, there was no benefit of saying, I got a great new idea. It's never been done before, like an, an entrepreneur might say now. Actually, the only way they'd get the idea accepted is to say, this idea is part of this old tradition all the way back from Lao Tzu. And, and it's actually only when it's seen as part of the tradition would it be accepted. Whereas in the West, there was right the way from ancient Greece onwards, there was a sense that different philosophers would actually, and just like now when we get um, somebody puts out something on the web and asks for donations, They would make their money by offering these schools, and people would donate to pay. And so they wanted to compete against the other philosophy. My idea is better because of this and that. And so they developed the whole notion of a theoretical proof in logic as a way of sparring almost with their competitor down the road, so they could earn more money in the marketplace with their idea. So there's a wonderful, obviously, quality that comes from that. So many of the great ideas we've had in the last couple of millennia. Um, have been around coming up with something new and showing that it's better than what was there before. But it also loses that sense of trying to see how things connect with other ideas around you and how actually um, by um, integrating things, it can actually be more more sustainable and actually be a richer experience than something, than the sort of modern entrepreneurial move fast and break things kind of way of thinking. What I offer, what I suggest is that when we look at a a different way of being right now, is not to reject the great value of this dominant worldview, but to use its benefits and integrate it with some of these other great wisdom traditions from the past, this recognition of deep interconnectedness, recognition of being part of all life. And some things I would say it's time to discard, like the notion of conquering nature The notion of seeing ourselves as separate from nature, that's been shown to be just wrong scientifically. And when we start to look at nature actually as being something that we actually are, something that we're part of, and we can actually begin to look at what is special about us as humans, not as something that is going to dominate nature, but also not as something to be ashamed of, not something to feel bad about, but to look with a different orientation. How can we use our technology? How can we use our unique way of thinking to actually integrate, to harmonize with nature, to be a benefit to other life as well as benefit to ourselves? It's known as symbiosis.
0: I don't know if it's in your book or somewhere else, but the definition of nature in the dictionary is everything other than man. I think is that what it is. Oh,
1: that's so interesting. No, I haven't seen that, but that makes sense. That would be what, uh, that's basically what our modern worldview says. Right.
0: I've also uh, was reading Ian McGilchrist's work and kind of understanding around the different hemispheres. And it feels like what you're talking about a little bit is the kind of descent to one quite small and distinct part of our brains and that becoming a really central part of our whole existence. And in a way, we've just lost sight, lost connection of the much broader, much bigger picture.
1: Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. Ian McGilchrist writes this, yeah, f- fabulous deep writer about how, basically, in his terms, the left hemisphere of the human brain has become dominant way over the right hemisphere. And the right hemisphere is the part that looks at our connectedness and, and more and can be comfortable with ambiguity. And the left hemisphere is the part that makes narratives and stories about things and looks at that sort of scientific way of looking at things. I agree with what he says, but I focus a lot on that left hemisphere in the prefrontal cortex, because that's the most developed part of the human brain that looks at things symbolically and allows us to have what I call a conceptual consciousness. And in fact, when I was first uh, for years working on developing my notes to that first book called The Patterning Instinct, I actually, my initial working title for the book was called the tyranny of the prefrontal cortex, because that's what I saw, like just like Miguel Chris, that that symbolic way of thinking has um, established a tyranny over the other parts of our being. And again, that's not to say, in fact, I discarded that title at some point because I didn't want to give the impression that I'm saying there's something wrong with that part of our brain. It's wonderful part of our brain to be um, revered and to Be honored. But when we just say, Descartes, that part of our brain is our only existence, then we lose not just um, our, our sense of connectedness with all of life, but we lose our own balance. We lose a sense of meaning in our own lives. And it's that way of thinking that I think has led to the sense of alienation and isolation that people have today because we don't, we're, we're taught from earliest years. To actually do that numbing, to like basically cut off our connectivity with others around us. And that leads to a, a loss of meaning, a loss of recognizing that we're part of something so much bigger.
0: Yeah. I, I noticed when I was uh, after reading uh, your book, I was looking, I was just flicking through one of my children's school books and. He, he was only little, like six or seven, the school book was from when he was, and pretty really struck by the categorization of everything. They're showing you these kind of species, the lineage of the thing, and there's nothing about the connection. And so kind of was just really sort of struck by, from the earliest sort of times, the most susceptible minds, essentially, were having that story played out over and over again, and still today, of course.
1: I think that's a really good point. And in fact, you know, we see the very notion of intelligence that we have is based on the IQ, and the IQ testing it doesn't actually test intelligence. What it tests is a certain type of intelligence, that conceptual left hemisphere intelligence, which is why what's fascinating is we see over the last century, IQ scores have inexorably gone up and up almost like reliably every decade all over the world for a century. It's not because humans have become, suddenly we just evolved to become smarter. It's because our culture um, does exactly what you just described in that in, in this kid's book, it instills a way of, th- of thinking to look at these separations between things, like the scientific and separate conceptual way of thinking as being the patterns in which young minds are meant to grow. <clears throat> and it's done a great job. So now humans tend to think, like in terms of our culture, more with their left brain and less recognizing our sense of deep connectedness, being less comfortable with ambiguity less comfortable with complexity, and and are less comfortable in our own bodies, with life itself. So essentially,
0: what has been, or the dominant idea, this kind of feeling of as a view of separation, uh, and what you're pointing to in your book is the kind of opportunity and a need for understanding the view of connection, essentially.
1: Yeah. And I think that when we want to understand basically what is our worldview all about, it basically is a worldview of separation. Yes, you know, the worldview that says, I'm My mind is separate from my body. I, as a human being, am separate from all other people. Um, And as humans, we are most definitely separate from nature, just like we've been describing. And a worldview of connectivity actually tells us what modern um, sciences have been pointing us to. And I'm talking about things like systems science, systems biology, complexity science, chaos theory, network theory, evolutionary biology. All of these sciences, basically, are sciences of connection, which look not just at uh, trying to make sense of things by looking, breaking them apart and trying to understand them in smaller and smaller pieces, which is uh, a former science called reductionism, which again, is not. there's nothing wrong with reductionism, but it's not the only way to make sense of things. And these other sciences of connectivity that have developed a lot in the last few decades, they show something very different. They show that actually we can make sense out of complex systems, which involves any living system, our consciousness, our societies, and the ways in which, uh, like our living bodies, we can make sense of those by focusing not just on each individual part, but focusing also on how they are connected. And once we look at these complex forms of connectivity, what we see is certain emergent principles arise that you could never understand by just focusing on the separate parts. That's what we find from modern science. But those, um, that recognition of emergent principles leads us to a deeper understanding of the connectivity of all things, which again is something that then leads us to some of the great insights from Buddhism and Taoism and indigenous wisdom that have been discarded as being unscientific but actually lead us towards a deeper scientific understanding, in fact.
0: In in terms of introducing people to some of those, just the ideas behind the kind of Buddhist ideas or the Taoist ideas, or even the the, the kind of Chinese ideas, is there a sort of uh, a kind of easy way, an easy little backstory into those at all?
1: One way of looking at things is, I'll just give you uh, the sort of story of how I came across this kind of linkage between things, basically. Because as I was in these early years, in my own exploration. And I was both trying to understand earlier cultures. I was reading a lot about, for example, traditional Chinese culture. And I was also trying to understand science. I, I first started off with a sort of Richard Dawkins type science saying, we're just driven by selfish genes and we're all separate from each other. And that's just the way it is. And if you don't like it, sorry, that's reality, folks. And so I said, okay, I'll accept that if I need to. But then when I came across systems sciences, and I started to learn about complexity theory and started to learn about how when complex systems interact, you get these emergent realities. And you get things like fractals, for example, which is like you begin to determine different patterns that exist at different scales. Um, you know, the fractals are something we see in all self-organized systems in all of nature, like on the patterning of leaves, the patterning on lightning, the patterns of our own neurons or our capillary system and and our blood system. And all of these show self-organized activity because the patterns that emerge then expand at different scales, all the way up to really the pattern of ecosystems and all of life that were all part of this fractally connected system. So there was this one uh, really wonderful leading uh, complexity theorist called Stuart Kaufman, who studies these things? At a, he works at a, an, an institute called the Santa Fe Institute, which is the leading institute in understanding this stuff. And he writes books that with titles like "At Home in the Universe" or sort whatever. Of. And what he shows is that these new principles, in, in his words. Lead us to new territory, and he was saying in his book, um, "This the principles of self-organization. Like they offer a new territory that's never been explored before, and we need it offers like a new way of making sense of the universe, which we've never, as human beings, come across." But meanwhile, here I was reading about these Neo Confucian sages in China from about a thousand years ago, who were taking the the ideas of Taoism and Buddhism and put it into this whole understanding of the universe and when they looked at the universe they said basically it's all created it's all of it is what they called chi which is like matter and or energy but then they said but the chi is organized in certain ways and they had a word for the, the patterns of organization they called it li which meant originally like the patterning of jade or so it was like this notion of this complex ways in which things worked and they said no like nothing exists without those patterns of, organiza- of organization, and what we need to do to get real wisdom is explore how those patterns work. And they did; they spent generations of brilliant philosophers looked at understanding these patterns of organization. So when I read this guy Stuart Kelfman talking about how in, in, uh, in human history explored these patterns before, I said to myself, actually, we have just not within the Western way of thinking, but this notion of Li that the Neo-Confucians have, this recognition that by understanding our connectedness, we can get a deeper understanding as to who we are. We're actually looking at the same reality that modern science is understanding. And that connectedness leads to a different way of of identity, of who we are as human beings. Because when I start looking at connectedness, I stop seeing myself as a separate individual, I start seeing that who I am is actually a result of um, my very consciousness as a result of generations of ideas that have come before me, that have come into me, these um, sort of principles of patterns into my own consciousness, that my very being is something that's always turning around. Actually, there's not a single cell in me when I was a little kid that's in me now, that it's actually the stuff that makes me what I am is the pattern of the ways in which all these things interact with each other rather than the actual stuff that I'm made of. And I don't exist separate from all of nature. And this realization then that the things we do have massive implications all through the global system, that's a different sort of way of understanding this has is both spiritually meaningful and scientifically valid, what science now shows us.
0: And it's also... The, the the kind of in a, in a way feels to me like the most challenging leap for us collectively to make because like we say from the kind of earliest sort of signals and what we learn everything is pushing us into this kind of narrow limited individual kind of me versus something world and even if I think about conversations I have even sort of helping people understand that we are connected, you know, that the relationship is the important thing, feels in some senses such a kind of hard thing for people to get their heads around.
1: I think that's right. See, here's what happens. We're told the humans are selfish, competitive individuals. And basically, the reason society works well is because of capitalism. All the different selfish stuff that people does actually makes the most efficient and is optimizes for everything. And then um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because we develop institutions that only reward that kind of selfish behavior. And so then, you know, when children grow up and become adolescents and start thinking about what they're going to do in life, they're led towards wanting to do stuff that gives them the status and power in our society that they think they're meant to want because they're not even aware there's other values to be looking for. And so the selfish behavior does get rewarded. So it becomes self-reinforcing. So then a person on the street will say to you and me having this conversation, well, what are you talking about? Come on, selfishness gets rewarded. We are selfish. This, the very proof of it is that the selfish people are the ones who are most successful and the ultra billionaires and all that stuff. So it's a cycle that we get stuck on. And it's actually what the reality is, that humans, in fact, what separates us, what differentiates us from other primates, is the exact opposite, is our ability to cooperate with others who are even not kin. Is actually we have moral instincts. We have an instinct to um actually want to share with others. We love people actually who we feel are generous and who are not like basically selfish assholes. And that's something that As humans, we evolve in that way. We want to work together. We evolve to want to be part of a group, to want to be connected with all of nature. But our society, ever since, really, ever since the birth of agrarian empires, but especially since the birth of capitalism in the last few hundred years, our society has led us in a different direction. So we have to basically, at some point, step off what is called by some people the hedonic treadmill. It's this treadmill that society puts us on, which is run faster and you'll be more successful. And you do that. And then it just says, okay, now you run even faster. And it's a system that is based on growth. It's a system that's based on kind of pulling human energy and minds into the system in order to exploit the rest of nature even more rapidly in order to ultimately make the elite who are the only real beneficiaries of the system, even wealthier at the expense of everybody else. But we're so stuck in that, that once you're on that hedonic treadmill, it's very difficult to get off. And just the same way that if you're running on a treadmill and you try to stop or try to jump off, well, you, you can't. You end up like falling and crushing. You're stuck in there. And so somehow that's the that's that we began our conversation with this place of it takes some sort of meltdown or some kind of crisis often for us to then start to look and say, what is going on? Why have I spent decades of my life, like working hard, doing all this stuff, not having a deeper connection with my family, with my kids? And why have I feeling so dissatisfied, not doing the things that I really care about? And you ask those questions. And oftentimes that's that bleakest moment when you go, what the hell have I been doing? can lead to the greatest potential for actually finding meaning in your life, because you get to realize that actually there's a different way of living that doesn't require that hedonic treadmill. And because the system needs us to be part of that treadmill, and the system tells us that's no good, the system needs growth in gross domestic product. And so if I stop buying fancy stuff from the supermarket and start growing my own vegetables, I'm subverting the system. You know, then I'm eating without actually adding to the the gross domestic product. I'm not doing what I'm meant to be doing, but I might be feeling a lot better about about something deep in my heart.
0: One of the other things just coming to mind as you were talking, uh, sort of some months ago was before COVID, when people went out. But I was I was out and we bumped into a, a young guy who was a student at, uh, at one of the universities in London at UCL. He was Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese. And uh, we were talking to him, and he you know was over and studying in London as there were sort of many sort of Chinese students there, and we were talking about what he was going to do after he finished and he felt so much pressure to repay not literally emotionally repay the commitment of his parents you know i'm going to get the job with the in the kind of bank or the management consultancy or whatever it may be that actually the the tracks that were laid down you kind of wonder what is the kind of moment that has that person thinking differently or looking around for something else what will what
1: that might be that's right and it does. It takes a lot. And so really, suggestion to anyone listening to this who's thinking about it is to really begin by just looking inside yourself. And that Buddhist n- notion that we all live in this place of dukkha. Oftentimes, when we're not used to that idea, and when I first came across that, I said, "Wait a minute! What a depressing view of looking at life. Like that, we're all suffering. Come on, there's got." But actually, what it takes a while. But what you get to realize is that is actually the opposite of the depressing view of looking at life. Because once you realize that actually deeper layers within you are not feeling fulfilled, not feeling satisfied, it opens up to this possibility. To then then you need to look at that with curiosity rather than with a sense of guilt or um, anger, like, how did I blow it so bad? Or like, what a jerk I am that I've done all these things. Or, or there can be this notion of when you feel in those levels of of not being content, You say, let me not go there. I'm scared because who knows what that'll lead to. Like there's probably layers upon layers. And But when you approach it with a sense of kindness to yourself, a sense of compassion, a sense of realization that all of us got actually grown up into this culture and we learned ways from our parents, from our culture around us to actually reject looking at those parts, to harden our shells basically then we don't have to feel bad about ourselves we did that, but we can be compassionate to those parts of ourselves when we were young that learned to act in those ways. And by approaching it with compassion, what we end up doing is not necessarily breaking down the barriers, but letting those barriers dissolve. They can dissolve in the sense that notion of connectivity, actually to use a word that can get um, oftentimes dismissed in our sort of cynical culture. But basically, that leads to a sense of love. In fact, in my book, I actually define love as really just a realization and embrace of connectedness. That's when we start to look at those parts within ourselves, those around us, um, people, others who are suffering maybe more than we are, all of life that is under destruction are from our civilization. And we notice our sense of connecting with that it can lead us to this realization that we're all part of something so much bigger, which can lead to actually a sense of an opening up. When our identity expands to include all of humanity or all of life, We f- and when we feel we're part of something bigger, then our lives themselves can become more meaningful if we choose to start to live our lives in that different kind of but. Rather than forcing it, the whole point is that when you move in that direction, you're not going, oh, I'm being a bad person, I should do something differently, or I should get more engaged in my community, or I should get more engaged politically to stop the destruction taking place. Rather than when it, it comes from within, when we start to really ask these questions about our own experience, we are led to the point where it just naturally occurs we want to get more engaged in things that are truly meaningful. And we start to find that actually when we're more generous, when we get involved in in really building community with others, suddenly we feel better about life itself and about ourselves just because that is what we're actually meant to do as human beings.
0: And in in the book, you talk about the idea of the ecological civilization, and that I guess connects to what you're saying there. This kind of way of living where we feel energized and that we're tapped into the innate pools of ingenuity and creativity and kind of wisdom, which sort of exists within all of us. So this idea of the ecological civilization being the the kind of culture that allows that to exist
1: to thrive. Yeah, this notion of ecological civilization is, it's not my own phrase. Other people have used it for um, a while now, but I love it and I've really embraced it myself. And it's this kind of realization that actually, when we look at this sense of deep connectedness and what that actually means, and we look at the fact that as humans, we evolved to really want to flourish in a way that our society is stopping us from doing. Then it leads to this natural question, what would a society, what would a civilization look like if it were built to set the conditions for humans to actually flourish in an ecosystem that was also flourishing? Is that even possible? And nowadays, we're, our modern civilization really tells us it's not even possible. But our modern civilization is built on these foundations of separation. It's built on extraction of resources. It's built on exploitation of other people. That's the foundation of the civilization. And the ultimate value of our civilization is wealth accumulation and power. But then if we start to imagine, what would a civilization look like if it were built on life-affirming principles? And we can actually look to ecosystems as an inspiration for that. Ecosystems are very complex. They're built, they have a ton of resilience built in. They're built on a foundation of what's called mutual, mutually beneficial symbiosis, where each different organism within the ecosystem does what it does. Um, it's not trying to do something for uh, for the whole ecosystem, but as, as being part of this bigger thing. And it finds ways to relate to other elements within that system that actually allows for the benefit of both. So the ecosystem as a whole gets to be rich and diverse because of each element in it working as part of a greater whole. When we think of what a human society would look like if we're doing, if we're based on something like, that leads to this vision of an ecological civilization, which would really lead to a, a reorientation of how things work, everything from education to the way business is conducted, to the way corporations are allowed to act, and to the way governance works, to the way we manufacture things rather than just and kind of exploiting stuff, manufacturing them to be circular so that we had a, like a circular economy, actually organizing things so that we had the basic foundations for human dignity, like enough income that available to every human being, access to housing, education, healthcare, and fundamental rights of every human being, setting the civilization on that basis. It's doable in our world. The only thing that's stopping it really is the political will based on this worldview that we have right now. That's what an ecological civilization offers us.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Because, yeah, I, I actually found that a really beautiful idea. And since, since reading about it in, in your book, it's actually one of the other people I'm speaking to as part of this is an economist called Mark Anielski. And he his area of, of interest is money, but not the hoarding money. But it, he also is very inspired by the idea of ecological civilization and how it relates to money and our understanding of money. But as I'm curious, like you say, the the thing that is stopping us, well, between where we are today and where that might be is the kind of political will is entrenched interest, is the power of the corporation, specifically the big corporation, and those sorts of power structures. Uh, and I guess in some form, beyond the kind of remit of this conversation and what we are able to do as individuals, there is a crumbling, right? So of all of the kind of systems on which that they represent and that they are hidden behind. So in some form, there is a crumbling of those things, which creates opportunity for new ideas, new things to kind of flourish. And I think you, you talk about in the book, or I've heard you speak about it, that as things crumble, people start to look around for new ideas.
1: I think that's right. I mean, one way of, of thinking about that, I think it's a very powerful concept because really when we look at the world today, I'm not a Pollyanna, and there's no reason to be particularly optimistic. Things are and getting worse and worse. Our countries are not dealing with um, climate breakdown. They're not even looking at the real sources. Corporations are getting more and more destructive and exploitative. Inequalities are getting even worse. And we are headed, at the moment, at an accelerating pace towards a precipice. But the thing that leaves me with some degree of hope about this is if we think of our current civilization like a weave of a fabric, when something is very tightly woven together, you could try to tear it apart, but you, nothing you can do about it. It's just stuck. It's like there. But imagine like the weave of a fabric that is beginning to unravel. And when things unravel, each string has less connection with everything else. And this there's not an invitation to tear it apart. We don't want things to collapse in our society. But there is this possibility of reweaving the way in which all of these things work within the fabric of the civilization as it unravels. So what that means, and when we look at our society itself, is rather than saying like revolution, what it's really about is actually creating new structures that are structures of meaning within community, communities getting together and building businesses and opportunities based on a sense of the commons, people sharing the ownership, sharing the power together, and looking at ways in which we can do things that are better than the current system. And they can be more effective than the current system. And we can you know, build cooperatives. We can move into agroecology, develop approaches like permaculture and regenerative agriculture, redesign our cities so they can be more people-friendly. And look at technology from a view not about how I can make the next billion dollars, but how can I empower people to connect better? And if we start to reweave the society from within, as the old society actually falls apart, rather than leading to this devastating collapse, it almost becomes a non-event, because over generations, the different society is being birthed from within. That's the opportunity we have, and that's the great adventure. That we all can do is to work together to be part of actually living into building that new civilization from within
0: so like I know one of the other I heard you speaking once about sort of the role in in the old world story, the kind of role of the like all institutions like the Royal Society who were stitching together ideas that kind of that gave weight via connectedness to those kind of ideas. I'm curious maybe it's a kind of moot point it's kind of irrelevant. Whether just focusing on, like you talk about, what we can all do individually, running our businesses, the work we do, how we choose to do it, the communities that we form, the communities that we invest in, the values that we invest in. And I know you talk in the book about the three degrees of impact, which comes from what we talk about and what we campaign for and how that influences people around us. Uh, And whether it's actually just all that's important is just focusing on that, or whether it is also simultaneously important to be thinking about you know, what's the equivalent of the Royal Society for this kind of movement.
1: Yes. Well, I think that what's very important is anybody who has that desire to be part of really building a more life-affirming future for, uh, for humanity and for all of life is to look at almost three different layers of scale to do that. It's a little bit like we were talking about fractals before. One is within each of us, uh, We can, what's called like decolonizing our own minds. We can look at the ways in which those structures of thought from the past shift and um, have affected us and try to learn to transform within ourselves. We can also um, get really much more connected with community around us, recognizing that it's in that place of community that we as humans really work best. But then it's also important to look at those global structures of power and to get engaged politically and um, to support organizations like extinction rebellion and um, people organizations that are looking at the drastic need to do something differently and trying to make people wake up to that and joining in with that and empower and and being part of these powerful shifts so i do think that's all and um, each of those different layers of engagement are all important and it's not like one comes before the other or one is better than the other, but one informs the other. And each one then amplifies our ability to do that transforming at that different levels of scale.
0: And, And whilst there may not be hierarchies, the thing, of course, which we have most immediate access to is the here. What's happening in the person exactly, and, and kind of understanding that. It has to that. begin
1: with that, yeah. It has to begin within ourselves. I, I think you're absolutely right, yeah.
0: When I, I read the book, you know, and as this conversation, super inspiring, I find it encouraging and encourages me to contribute to this debate, to be part of it. Uh, and I guess if I think about anybody who's kind of sort of listening, what your final invitation to, to people might be as they disappear off to the end of the podcast?
1: Thank you. Well, basically, the invitation is to... Anyone who actually is looking at what's going on in the world right now and maybe feeling concerned at all about this kind of future that um, seems to be beckoning like this really potential, really terrible future or this potential for a, a turnaround for something positive to happen is to realize that what happens, it's not a spectator sport. Part of this realization of interconnectedness is to realize that each of us it, we're not like in, in the stands, watching the game, saying which side's going to win. We're actually part of the game. We're actually part of creating that future. And each of us has a part to play in this deeply interconnected system that actually is the future unfolding. And once we realize that, we kind of realize that every conversation we have, every action we take, every decision we make is actually part of this amazingly complex future that humanity is creating for itself. So just to feel into that and realize that if anybody who really cares about about a sense of life, cares about their own children and grandchildren and future generations, who cares about really a, a really flourishing future, to realize that's something that each of us has agency to be part of in helping to create.
0: Thank you very much, Jeremy. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Uh, like I said, the book was is super inspiring. I really, really enjoyed it and uh, kind of appreciative of you taking the time to, to talk with us today.
1: Well, thank you, Ben. It's been a great pleasure having this conversation with you uh, and I look forward to more. Thank you. Take care now.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jeremy. If you did, or even if you didn't, uh, if you think there's someone who might enjoy it or might dislike it as much as you have, Please share it. Please forward it on. That is the lifeblood of this. So really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do that. But most importantly, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I hope it's delivered you that little pocket of inspiration that we promise. Uh, If you're keen and curious to find out more uh, about what we're doing, all of the information about this series is hosted together with all of the other work that we do. You can find everything at BuddhaOnTheBoard.com that's buddhaontheboard.com. Go look at Peripheral Thinking there. There's an opportunity to sign up to be kept up to date with all of the developments as new conversations are released. So head along there, check out some of the things that we're doing, sign up for updates, and I look forward to having you along for the next one. Love and blessings, people. Bye-bye.